Politics Uncensored with Ali Milani on Fubar Radio. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another edition of Politics Uncensored. I am Ali Milani, your host, joining you for another week where we talk about the top topics in our political and media system around the UK. We have a bunch of really, really important guests uh, and a really important topic that we've not discussed uh, on the show. But I want to give a big thank you uh, to everybody for joining me again for another week. Um, we're going to we're going to touch the topic of drugs and drug decriminalization uh, following major stories uh, from Scotland, where the Scottish government are looking uh, at decriminalization and have had some pushback from Westminster. Before I get to that and before I introduce this week's Unwrapped uh, and our guest, uh, I just want to make sure I remind everybody that you can catch all of our previous episodes are on FUBAR's radio as well as on podcasting platforms. All you have to do is search Politics Uncensored and it will take you there. Uh, and you're able to catch up all our different discussions, including with people like Lord Heseltine, Clive Lewis, Dawn Butler uh, and others. But this week we have the very first guest that's coming back to the show for this week's uh, Unwrapped. And that is Natalie Balmain, winner of Channel 4's Make Me a Prime Minister and the UK's first alternative prime minister. Last time uh, I ref referred to you as your highness. This time it's going to be <laughs> the right honourable Natalie. How are you doing, Natalie? Thank you so much for coming I'm back. Good. Thank you for having me back, Ali. I'm, I'm prepared now that I'm coming back this time. I'm going to be even more uncensored than I was last time. <laughs> good. Well, you were awesome last time, so I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> uh, the country's in even more of a mess since you joined us last. Uh, and that's what this segment is about. Regular listeners will know that we go through some of the three or four of the top stories uh, in politics uh, from around the country and sometimes around the world. And we're starting with around the world this week. Uh, story number one is Iowa's Republican-led legislature has passed a bill banning most abortions after six weeks. So both in the Senate and the House passed the legislation on Tuesday night after Republican Governor Kim Reynolds called for a rare special session to hold a vote on the restrictions. The bill is expected to face legal challenges. In a statement after it passed, Governor Reynolds said the Iowa legislature had voted to protect life. Justice for the unborn should not be delayed, she said. So this is part of a growing and concerning movement across America that will undoubtedly find its way across the Atlantic. Uh, and that is attacks Absolutely. on abortion. Natalie, what do you make of this? So I, I'm going to take you through a little journey on this because I feel very, very strongly about this. And, and there is, yes, I believe, a, a very cynical reason behind this. So the six week mark, let's be very clear, is about control, because most women don't know at six weeks that they're pregnant. There will be no symptoms of pregnancy other than a missed period. And many women who um, have irregular periods for a variety of reasons would just not have have checked or or tested at the six week mark so it is a, it's a it's a control measure it's designed to force women to give birth and you have to ask yourself why and the first point that i want to bring up here is it's very interesting that these same governors and republicans who are shouting to protect children so fiercely only seem to want to do this up until the point that the children are born because they're not you don't hear the same outrage from these same politicians about gun control and as we know, in America, some of the, the, the biggest proportion of the victims of gun control are children. So why are they so concerned with, with women giving birth and they're not concerned with gun control? Well, we know that the gun control issue is a vested interest. The NRA spent five times more in lobbying the Senate about 
not having gun laws than all of the Senate's annual salaries combined five times that much in 2021. So there's a vested interest in the gun in the gun laws. So can we ask ourselves, is there a vested interest in this law as well? And I believe there is. It comes back to this is a capitalist decision because we know that the people who are disproportionately affected by this law are people in low socioeconomic backgrounds. So why? Why do they want these people to have more children? Well, it's simply because less people are having children these days. They can't afford it. They, you know, the, the world is a terrible place, whatever. And they need people to keep having children. So they keep having worker bees mm -hmm. to keep the economy going. Because, of course, the people at the top can't cream off the top unless there are people at the bottom churning the milk. And so this is a capitalist decision, and it's also an inhumane decision because we are they are forcing women who may be in very, very poor situations that that could be the reason why they can't they don't want to have the child financially or poor domestic situations, whatever homeless, whatever. yeah um, and and so you're you're forcing children to be born into traumatic environments. the The, the question is on abortion, particularly in America, I think you've hit the nail very, very uh, well on the head here. Uh, and that's surrounding this argument of being pro-life. Uh, even if we take the economic situation out of it, I, it's often baffling that people who claim to be pro-life uh, are completely willing for life to be taken with the use of AR-15s and automatic rifles in America. They're completely willing to overlook uh, the opioid crisis that has been triggered in America that has cost over 100,000 people their lives from opioid uh, overdoses, which we're going to get into later. But they are desperately obsessed with women's bodies. Uh, and that's that's sort of what baffles me because it's not like there isn't political blowback either. The last election, the last general election in America where Donald Trump was defeated by Joe Biden, we saw data that suggested women had voted in droves and they voted against Republicans at local, state and federal level as a result of the abortion ban. So they're feeling the political backlash of this. They're feeling the economic backlash. It, it makes no moral sense because also... I'm sure you would agree this doesn't this doesn't take away abortion from the state. What it does is it criminalizes it and it pushes it into dangerous areas where women's lives are at risk. So why are they so obsessed? Other than the economic argument, what is this ideological drive between controlling women's bodies? Um, I, I hate to, to bring up this word because I think sometimes it just gets flung around a little bit too easily these days. But it, it comes back to a patriarchal society, doesn't it? Let's not forget that women only gained rights in the last hundred or so years so you know this i think there's still a movement of people who don't feel that that, that is right and that men should still have autonomy over yeah and, we, and we've seen i think we've seen since this argument kind of broke out during the trump uh presidency that there are pl plenty of legislatures and governors and others who are anti-abortion and yet have paid either mistresses or wives to have abortions themselves um, so they don't even stand up to their own moral scrutiny uh, in that regard. I wonder if you, we've seen, you know, this, is, this isn't just an American problem, but particularly it is a rising American problem. Are you worried that it could cross the Atlantic and enter our political discourse here? Um, Absolutely. I mean, I think we've seen Jacob Rees-Mogg amongst others go on TV and, and, and state their opposition to abortion. Um, it seems that a lot of uh, the, the political trends a la Trump in recent years came to the UK eventually. Are we a little bit worried about, about how this is gonna impact us here? A hundred percent. There's a long, long history of the US 
influencing or pressurizing uh, the UK to to follow suit, going back to the League of Nations. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, absolutely. What I, kind I of do reaction think. do you think we'll get here um, if if the abortion debate is opened up once again? Do you think it could um, it could turn ugly in terms of the political and social sort of situation across the UK? Mm, absolutely, I think so because we're often surprised at these subcultures aren't we you know i think although we as people of color have always known that racism exists in the united kingdom um what happened after brexit was a, a huge number of people who felt empowered to now talk freely about those beliefs mm -hmm. and um and i do think that if that conversation comes up here we will probably find a subculture of people here also yeah who will start to feel empowered to openly... I, yeah, I definitely think that's true. Things that were settled debates, uh, I think, are now being re-legislated. Like, um, if you would have asked me maybe five, ten years ago um, if I thought the abortion issue would come back in America other than in the fringes of the far right within the Republican Party, I would have said Roe v. Wade pretty much put an end to that. But it seems like some of these things are, are, are creeping up again and we should be wary of that. So our second story this week, uh, in line with far right, Trump um, and others, is Boris Johnson's ally Nadine Doris is facing a potential investigation over alleged communications she made to civil servants regarding her thwarted peerage. Now, if you remember, Nadine Doris uh, was supposed to receive a peerage um, in, as part of Boris Johnson's um, his leaving list that he hands to the following government. Uh, Cabinet Secretary Simon Case has said that the, he had referred the messages Miss Doris allegedly sent to senior civil servants to Tory Chief Whip Simon Hart uh, and Commons Speaker Lindsay Hoyle. He said he had also sought legal advice over the matter. Uh, and, you know, I think immediately after her peerage uh, was U-turned on, we saw Nadine Doris, uh, I believe, on GB News talking about how this was an attack on a working class Liverpudlian girl uh, who was breaking the glass barrier and headed to the House of Lords. Um, now, Nadine Doris, to the best of my knowledge, hasn't resigned yet, um, even no, though she promised to resign. they're calling her resign. the lingering member. Yeah, she said she was going to resign, and then her peerage was U-turned, and she still has not resigned. What do you make of this mess? Oh, well, it's just more Nadine Doris, isn't it? I mean, the woman is an absolute idiot. She's a, a self-promoter. She's a, a bully now, it seems. More allegations of bullying within the Tory party. And, I mean, it's just, just idiotic. Yeah, I mean, look, there's... There's a lot going on recently around WhatsApp messages and private messages that are that are sent uh, from government ministers and members of parliament. Um, it seems like there is a last week we had uh, someone from the trade union that represents s staff in the House of Commons estate. Uh, and he told us about the sort of standards of behavior and the problems that exist there. We do have a serious problem with the standard of our public servants and the behavior they display both in office and in ministerial office. No absolutely 100 we're an embarrassment yeah you know, we're, we're a, a nation that once purported to be world leaders but now with the people we have in charge we can't even lead ourselves well we are leading the world in terms of idiots and, and clowns <laughs> in office, um, yeah, there we go it's like winning the razzie isn't it so i'm still the best at being the worst <laughs> well there was a period in time i think where global leaders included donald trump boris johnson um who's the guy from brazil um, oh, um, Bolsonaro. Bolsonaro, Narendra Modi, um, and uh, France was 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 going toe to toe with the far right. Um, yeah. And you know, some places, Narendra, Mo um, 
Bolsonaro has been booted from office. Biden beat Trump. And yet we're still dealing with these clowns of Reese Mogg and Braverman and Boris and, and et al. Yeah. Do yeah. you, and do I, I try and uh, explain this to my friends in the States. You know, they had X number of years of having to deal with the Republicans, but they got the Democrats back. And I said, we've had more than 12 years of these guys yeah. back to back. And it's they're absolutely destroying the joint. Yeah. And <laughs> speaking of destroying the joint, that's a very good uh, segue into our third story. And that's Michael Gove destroying the joint. Michael Gove's department is handing back one point nine billion pounds to the Treasury, originally meant to tackling England's housing crisis after struggling to find projects to spend it on. The Department for Leveling Up Housing and Communities has surrendered hundreds of millions of pounds budgeted for 2022-2023, including £255 million meant to fund new affordable housing and £245 million meant to improve building safety. Officials said the department was unable to spend the money, I'm struggling to get through this, which accounts for about a third of its entire housing budget, thanks to rising interest rates and uncertainty in the housing market after the COVID-19 pandemic. England has one of the worst housing crises anywhere in the world, London specifically. To get on the housing ladder is £115,000 on average for people to put down in down payments there are thousands upon thousands on waiting lists uh waiting to get council housing uh we have uh homelessness and rough sleeping at highest levels uh in decades yet michael gove is handing back 1.9 billion pounds because he doesn't know where to spend it natalie i mean this is just staggering isn't it i mean i, I you just build <laughs> surely I mean, yeah, just build. Well, exactly, exactly that, just build. And and there's a few points that I want to make about this because part of that money was building safety monies. Yeah. I'm still, I, I've not heard, as far as I'm aware, that all of these um, complexes that have been affected by cladding have been covered by the supposed building safety fund. So I'd be interested to know that they've all been protected before this money's been handed back. Yeah, that's and, £245 and million pounds of that budget was meant to improve building safety. And of course, we all know cladding was a result uh, of the uh, Grenfell Fire tragedy uh, many, many years ago. But yes, £245 million was meant to improve building safety, yet they don't know how to spend it. Exactly. And the second point I would like to make, which is just a, a simple phrase that I've not heard anyone mention in government as part of this, is building multi-generational housing. Mm -hmm. I mean, it solves so many of the issues that they're saying are, are blocking them from doing this. If you build housing that has a sort of front and a back, maybe separated by a small courtyard that gives privacy, you could have three generations living in a house. Grandparents have their own private space. Parents and children have their own private space. They're able to afford it more easily because they're sharing the bills. There's childcare on hand mm -hmm. for, for parents who are, there's childcare costs are crazy because they've got their grandparents there. There's People are there, you know, to help with loneliness for the, the older generation. And yet nobody seems to be talking about building multi-generational housing. Yeah, we, and we've got to call bullshit on this. There's no way that they can't spend £1.9 billion in a housing crisis across the country. There surely no, is an ideological it. reason they're choosing not to spend it. They don't want Ab to spend it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and that's, that's, you know, there are many reasons why that may be. They may want to keep demand high. They may want to keep supply low. Uh, they may be worried about uh, inflation, but this idea that they don't know how to spend 1.9 billion pounds while we've got highest levels of homelessness, thousands upon thousands on waiting lists for council houses, um, and uh, you know a, a housing crisis across the country um, is ludicrous. And that brings us in time for story number four, our final story, and the theme of the show this week, um, as we bring guests uh, from across the country, is on drugs. 
Um, the Scottish government is challenging Westminster to decriminalise all drugs for personal use in a fresh attempt to tackle Scotland's chronically high drug death rates. Introducing a new paper on reform, Scotland's Drugs and Alcohol Policy Minister Elena Whittam, who will be on the show later today, described the proposal as ambitious and radical, grounded in evidence that will save, help save lives. But Downing Street immediately dismissed the Scottish government's calls to overhaul uh, or devolve the legislation, which is reserved to Westminster, with the Prime Minister official spokesperson saying that Rishi Sunak had no plans to alter his tough stance on drugs. So this is the Scottish government trying to come in line, really, with places like Portugal, states like Oregon in America, um, that have decriminalized the use of drugs for personal use. And I believe it was within one hour the government uh, the, in Westminster said no. Uh, I believe the Labour Party has also said no. Uh, we'll, we'll double check that. Um, Natalie, I just want to get your view on, on drug policy and whether decriminalisation is the way to go. I mean, listen, I'd be really interested to hear Elena's point of view on this. Um, but, you know, I have some outlining thoughts. Yes, it's worked in places like Portugal and places like that. But we do have to remember that places have cultural differences and sometimes something that works somewhere might not work something somewhere else, down to something as simple as climate in some instances. Um, but... I do think that there's perhaps a middle ground here like that, that, that they can discuss. Um, if they went as far as to legalise cannabis, for example, which we know from looking at states in America and various other places, little impact on their crime or, or health um, statistics, but huge tax revenues. So then you could perhaps use those tax revenues to build more safe drug use support centres where people who use other drugs can go to safely use them, where there's yeah. clean needles, where I, they can I, have medical care and be supported to come off. I think I think the main argument being used and the reason I think Elena, what I, I imagine she'll say later on, is that it's not only ambitious and radical, but like she says, it's grounded in evidence. The evidence suggests that using the penal system to deal with drug addictions and drug use um, in our societies has clearly not worked. Yeah. Uh, and using, um, whether we're talking about decriminalization, the use, but actually using it as a healthcare matter, as a public health issue, yeah. is far more effective. Is that is that persuasive to you? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I don't think that, that the penal system works for it at, at all. I think that support centres might be the way to go. So, yeah, I guess it, it would still be decriminalising it if there's no penal uh, uh, sort of offence made. But, yeah, absolutely. I just think that um, it, it is a health issue. It's absolutely a health issue. We know it is. And we also have to tackle the stigma around this if mm -hmm. we really want to support people yeah and we have to understand the history on it and and, so. and discuss it based on evidence natalie thank you so much we're going to continue on this issue uh, of decriminalization of drugs in scotland portugal uh, and beyond joining us we've just been talking about uh, elena whittam uh, minister for drugs and alcohol policy for scotland and MS msp for carrick cumnock and dune valley she's going to be joining us to talk about this policy after this FUBAR Radio presents As handsome as you imagine What did you have for breakfast that morning? Almost certainly a pie For breakfast? Yeah, because we started really, really early, right? At the butchers yeah. We started proper early, that's yeah. like 7 o'clock I would have had at least 6 pies A day? A day That is a lot of pies No, no, because we sold them at the shop That is a legitimate answer to the question Who ate all the pies? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> From 1pm every Monday Welcome back. This is Ali Malani on politics 
Uncensored at FUBAR Radio. Today, we are talking about drugs and the decriminalization of drugs following the Scottish government's proposal to decriminalize all drugs for personal use in an attempt to tackle Scotland's chronically high drug death rates. Introducing a new paper on reform, Scotland's Drug and Alcohol Policy Minister Elena Whittam described the proposal as ambitious and radical, grounded in evidence, and one that will help save lives. However, I believe within one hour, Downing Street unsurprisingly dismissed the cause um, to overhaul and devolve the legislation, saying Prime Minister's stance on drugs won't change. Labour also distanced themselves from the plan, saying they would not decriminalise drug supply or possession, though um, what I notice in, in, in Labour's statement is uh, personal use has been left pers uh, purposefully vague, I suspect. Joining me now is the Minister for Drugs and Alcohol Policy of Scotland and SM MSM MSP for Carrick, Cumnock and Dune Valley, Elena Whittam. Elena, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Ali. Thanks for having me. Could you give us a little bit of a, a layman's introduction as to, as to why this, this paper is being introduced and what you hope to tackle? Well, as you rightly pointed out yourself, we know that Scotland has, um, uh, you know, an issue when it comes to a huge number of of people lost every year to drugs, and um, but we also know that the UK as a whole, uh, you know, has an issue, an increasing issue year on year. You know, if we think about three people every single day losing their life in Scotland and um, to problematic drug use, there's also another, um, you know, fifteen people, fourteen people across the rest of the UK. So we know that the, you know, the, the Misuse of Drugs Act is quite antiquated at the moment. You know, it's about 53 years old. Um, it's rooted in a very um, punitive, um, you know, system that we had back then. And we know that if we're looking to actually have a, a fully integrated public health approach, we cannot continue to criminalise people. We can't continue to push people to the margins of society and um, to stop people from feeling as if they can come forward. Now, this mm -hmm. isn't a panacea. It's not a silver bullet. It absolutely has to be wedded to, you know, a, a fully supportive, um, resource-driven, supportive um, atmosphere out there as well. So it's not just one thing. We absolutely need to make sure that people can get into services and can get the support that they need. But without this, you know, these laws being brought up into the 21st century, we're going to continue to punish people and treat them as criminals rather than rightly treat them um, as people that need support for a health condition. Yeah. So one of the things I, I don't think this country has had a very good debate on drugs uh, over the, over the last uh, sort of decade or two. Um, th there seems to be this in instinctual and I think kind of bad political reaction by politicians on drugs where they just want to seem tough. Right. They yeah. want to seem tough on drugs and therefore their policy is dictated not in the evidence, not in what we think works, but rather on looking tough. So I want us for a little bit to just talk about uh what has what has led us to this moment um and that is that clearly people who are addicted to drugs suffer from a disease um that that needs to be dealt with in a public health mechanism we have used the penal code in the criminal system for nigh on forever and it's not worked uh that is clearly to me when i see the the policy that you're putting out is responding to it as a public health issue rather than a criminalized criminal issue, correct? Am I right in that or? Yeah, no, you're absolutely correct. And I think if, you know, you've hit the nail on the head in terms of there, there seems to be this kind of trying to out-tough each other. And, uh, you know, and I think that's really lamentable because, you know, people might think that this has been tough on crime to make sure that we continue down this, this punitive um, path that we've been on for so many years. But 
the war on drugs has failed the world over. The war on drugs has failed hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people that have died um, due to the fact that we were treating them as if they're criminals. If you stigmatize somebody, if you make somebody feel as if they cannot come forward because what they're doing is considered illegal, mm -hmm. you know, we're not going to be able to reach those people. And I, I just find it fundamentally um, lamentable at this stage, you know, in, in 2023, that we're not able to have a fully out in the open, you know, rational debate about this that is not based in, in knee-jerk reactions, you know, that actually looks at the evidence. Mm -hmm. You know, what we've put forward, you know, is is a, you know, a common position that's been held by all of the UN chiefs, you know, all 31 of them of the, of the UN agencies since 2018. Yeah. It's something that happens in other countries where they've had crises, you know, like this. And um, I think it's, uh, what, what I was really struck by with what you said is this grounded in evidence approach, because forgive me but coming out of covid and brexit and other things i think we're tired of politicians who do, who aren't experts in the field kind of gesturing and and grandstanding on issues of that are of vital importance to the health of the public uh, and the evidence clearly suggests that some people are are uh, are more susceptible biologically to addiction that addiction can can really benefit from a public health approach yeah, we've got people like Rishi Sunak and even the Labour Party now distancing themselves from a policy that clearly takes us to that approach. How disappointing is that, that you've got politicians playing politics with people's lives? Yeah, I mean, I find it really um, disappointing. Um, and I think that it's, you know, it's going to cost lives, unfortunately. You know, and, you know, the, the Scottish government has realised that we need to make sure that the resources are there to support people. You know, and there's a £250 million pound um, a national mission that we have over the course of this parliament to actually make sure that we enable people to actually come forward and get the support that they need and mm -hmm. that they've got a choice in that support. Um, so mm -hmm. that's something that you know, I'm going to be keeping a, a, you know, yeah. an eye on. But I think you've hit the nail on the head as well in terms of experience. You know, I come into this role having formerly been a frontline worker, supporting people through homelessness, many people who um, had substance use issues um, and who were also interacting with the criminal justice system. I yeah. saw firsthand what would happen with somebody, you know, going into prison um, yeah. for possession um, and then the, the impact that that had on that young person yeah. for the rest of their life. Elena, I wonder, I, I'm really glad you've said that because what I want to do is for people listening who might not be experts in this area, I want them to really understand what this means, what this decriminalization policy means uh, for people in Scotland and, and maybe even across England. We, we look at Portugal. Portugal is often cited as an example because they decriminalize um, the use of drugs for personal use uh, many, many years ago. Uh, they've gone from a penal system to a public health system. We've seen HIV transmissions plummet. From 2000 to 2008, prison populations fell by 16.5%. Uh, so there's some really good data there. Yeah. As it pertains to this policy, what does it mean in practice for someone who is found to be using drugs, who's addicted to drugs? Um, how, did, how would this policy shift change the way we approach uh, their disease, their condition, and, and how we support them? Yeah, so I mean, Scotland um, has already uh, a system in place that our Lord Advocate um, has actually directed that people can be given, you know, a recorded police warning as opposed to um, entering into the, the criminal justice system fully for a possession charge. But we need to recognise that recorded police warning will still remain on somebody's record for a few years and it's still a criminal justice, um, you know, response to, to the issue. Removing that um, criminal justice response fully would actually empower people to feel as if it's safe for them to come forward and disclose that they perhaps have a, an issue that needs dealt with. And you know, and you rightly point to Portugal. We can't lift, 
you know, whilst we can't lift something entirely from another country and, and, and drop it into Scotland or the United Kingdom, we can certainly learn from them. And we know that there's huge moves in the last, you know, two decades in, in, in Portugal. But we also can see right now that once you disinvest from those support services, that's when you start to see problems happening again. So I think, you know, Portugal, we need to make sure that we, we do the two things at the same time. You know, mm -hmm. we decriminalise people. Um, and also we make sure that there's a support system there that's really funded for so, them. So as it pertains, it, and I, we're going to talk about that funding as well because there are some other data coming out of Portugal um, that many argue is as a result of, of, of defunding or a lack of funding in, in the healthcare space. Um, but in essence, what we're talking about here is rather than someone who may be uh, found with drugs, addicted to drugs, um, being criminalized and and the answer being basically the criminal justice system the courts the police and prison yeah. what we'd rather do is is a safe space for them to use for, for the drugs the syringes and other things that they use yeah. that we know at least are safe and that we give them the health approach to whether that's rehabilitation or others a, a publicly funded health approach to wean them off and essentially support them in 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 beating their addiction as opposed to putting them in prison have i got that right you have got that right. And I think what's really important that you've just pointed out is in terms of those harm reduction measures. So if we think about safer consumption facilities, you know, otherwise known sometimes as overdose prevention centers, or we think about harm reduction measures like drug checking, if we make those um, available and, and many more communities with a really low threshold to get into them so that they're not overly medicalized, you actually can access them in a very easy way. We're starting to empower people in a health perspective. You know, I want people to be able to know what it is that they're taking and then decide how they're going to use that and whether they're actually going to use it. You know, if they think that they're purchasing heroin and it turns out that it's actually fentanyl or it's laced with really strong benzodiazepines, you know, if we make sure that they're in a, a place of safety where they can use that, um, yeah. what happens after that is they actually can start to access all of the other supports that they perhaps need, whether mm -hmm. that's to do um, with poverty and inequality, whether that's to do with housing and um, all sorts of things. Once you actually start to engage with people and they feel as if they're safe, mm -hmm. um, they start to reach out to get the, the other support that they need. So Elena, I wonder if you can talk to, there may be people listening, uh, parents, um, people who aren't familiar, as familiar with drug policy and how it works in different countries. What they will be concerned about hearing decriminalization is in essence, is the state going to endorse flooding our streets with drugs? Um, are we going to see an increase uh, amounts of drugs flooding into the streets now that they're not criminalized, they're not in the sort of dark spaces, in the dark alleys, um, that, that their children are going to be be faced uh, with a greater variety of drugs um, and, and easier to get their hands on drugs? Um, and that's not all unfounded. Uh, the we mentioned Portugal, the, the, the good elements of Portugal uh, in that HIV transmissions plummeted and prison populations fell. But we have also seen addiction levels rise in recent years. Overdose rates hit a 12-year high and doubled in Lisbon from 2019 to 2023. Now, many argue, as we spoke earlier, that this is a result of defunding and a lack of funding in the healthcare space to deal with this. But what would you say to a parent who's listening in thinking this kind of policy is going to see our streets flooded with more drugs and addiction rates going up? Yeah, I mean, I understand that. I'm a parent myself. I've got two children. You know, I was a young person myself who, you know, encountered, um, you know, a culture growing up in Canada where there was a lot of, of drug taking around about me. Young people are always, you know, going to experiment. And I think that if we allow those young people to have the best chance of being safe at the same time as as making sure we've got a really robust education and support system 
you know, before that. So we can try as far upstream as we can to actually divert young people from engaging that in the first place. That's really important. I think what we do know is that, you know, decriminalization in itself does not actually um, mean that there's going to be an increase in consumption um, in, in our communities. What it actually starts to do is take some of the power away from the nefarious um, you know, gangs and um, dealers that there are out there. And I think what the paper also sets out is, you know, at some point in time um, in Scotland, should we have the powers to do so, we want to have a grown-up conversation with our entire country round about, you know, what is the possibility of a regulated supply? Um, you know, it's not something that we're setting out to say right now that that's what we're going to do. But I think as a country as a whole, we should start to have that, that conversation to start fleshing that out. Because drugs as a topic... It's a very scary topic mm -hmm. for parents. It's a well, very people will have topic. heard regulated supply and instantly alarm bells going off in their head about essentially the state supplying drugs to its population um, and, and, and the concerns around that. Yeah, I think you have to look around the world where you do have some elements of regulated supply. One of the things within the paper that I'm, I am looking for is, you know, more of a rollout of heroin assisted treatment. You know, what better way to stop the heroin dealers um, and what better way to perhaps stop fentanyl from really taking a hold in our shores here than to actually support people who really need that extra support um, with a, you know, with a safe supply of, of such a treatment and, you know, in a medical setting where they can get that support and the follow-on support that they need as well. Yeah, so well, you know, we're not look, setting opponents. So I don't. I should say, as you can tell from, I guess, the theme and the, the tone. I don't agree with this position. I actually agree that decriminalisation um, position. But many will argue that there's a moral case to that. That in essence, once you, while while they understand that, uh, we, you would be able to provide cleaner and safer if that's possible. Uh, drugs to people as opposed to take and taking it away from nefarious hands of of organized crime and and um and, and criminals uh if the state was to s supply drugs to its citizens it's essentially from a moral perspective endorsing its use i think you know we've got a moral perspective just now that criminalizes people and that pushes people to the margins yeah i think everybody agrees that doesn't work no, it absolutely doesn't work. And whilst I'm not... I mean, everyone except for Rishi and... and yeah. And <laughs> whilst, yeah, whilst I'm not setting out a position round about regulated supply, you know, the paper just says that Scotland um, should be able to have that conversation with its people at some point yeah. to see where that goes. If you think about organisations like Leap UK, which is, you know, made up of former um, serving police officers um, and sometimes some current serving police officers... That's something that they advocate for from, you know, from their frontline perspective on it. They see that that is the ultimate way to take away the control um, from those serious and organized criminals that actually wreak so much havoc into our communities. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think, you know, we said it earlier, I don't think there has been a, a good enough discussion around drugs in general uh, mm -hmm. around uh, in our politics. One thing... Uh, the paper aside, what I want to talk about is the government response to this. I think it took an hour for Rishi Sunak to kind of bat it away. Labour has distanced themselves from that now. How disappointed are you at that? And what do you think that reflects about Westminster? I think I'm not really surprised in terms of, of the UK government's response to it, because I think that their position has been very clear for a long time. I am really disappointed, however, in um, UK Labour's position on it. Um, and also in Anna Sarwar, the, the Scottish um, Labour leader's position, he has some of his, you know, vocal backbenchers that are in support of decriminalisation that actually see the possibilities of what this could mean. 
Um, and I think you the know, statement we got from Labour, sorry, Elena, to cut you off. Yeah, the statement we yeah. we we see from Labour is the Labour would distance themselves from the plan, saying that quote they they would not decriminalise drug supply or possession. Um, they've left out personal. Yeah. They they've left out personal use. There may be some 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 room in that. I think you know on the morning that um, I you know released the paper, I think. You know, um, Rachel Reeves, um, you know, was in Scotland at the time with Anna Sarwar, and she said that she thought this was a, a stunning thing for, for me to be focused on. I actually took that as a very stunning comment, um, because I think that, you know, it's not just Scotland, as I said at the beginning of, of you know, the, mm -hmm. you know the, the emission today, we actually have thousands of people across the uk dying and i think what people are failing to realize yeah i mean I, I've, have I've grown up in really, london and it's certainly yeah. an issue in london it will be and unless we have those really good harm reduction measures in place i'm actually really terrified as to what's going to happen if we get flooded with fentanyl if we get more and more really strong um street benzodiazepines into the hands of people um who don't know what they're taking so without yeah. drug checking without safer consumption facilities which we cannot roll out at pace without the misuse of drugs act being brought up to the yeah. 21st century um i'm really worried about what's going to happen I, I think the debate is really important listen i i spend quite a bit of time with some of these politicians and elena it won't surprise you to know that when i catch some of them in private moments their yeah. personal positions are very different to what they say publicly they will be very pers personally because they know the data they've seen the evidence-based approach they know that this is the right maybe not this specific policy or this specific paper but they know this is the right direction to go in um but there seems to be a fear of not appearing tough on drugs yeah. um and the public debate around the issue the political debate around the issue seems to be about 10 or 15 years behind where it should be um so the debate itself is surely good. It moves us forward and it and, and, and maybe it'll inject a little bit of courage in our politicians from across the political spectrum. I mean, I mostly engage with the Labour side, but I'm sure there are conservatives, libertarian conservatives specifically, yeah. who might agree with this policy, but are just scared about the public response. Yeah, and I think that's that's a really sad place for us to be in. I mean, genuinely, I would like to get round the table with all of you know the actors in this space to actually really have a, a good conversation. You know, and let those people who are experts, whether that's experts from a medical position, you know, the, the British Medical Journal backs um, decriminalisation. Um, you know, we've got the Royal College of Physicians um, in, in Edinburgh that's come out in support of this. You know, so we know that there's a lot of, of you know, support for these types of measures. But that rhetoric, that populist narrative that's out there, that's all pervading at the moment, is pre preventing that really grown-up conversation from happening. Mm -hmm. And whilst we're part of the UK, you know, these people that are dying in Scotland are UK citizens, and they need both of their governments to work together on this. And um, so I'm absolutely prepared to mm. do it. What, um, what? And I've written to my, my ministerial counterpart in the UK government to offer you know, a meeting as soon as possible. Uh, if I may slip in a, um, a penultimate question that isn't necessarily to do with drugs, but it's more to do with Scottish independence and devolution. Do you think this will have any serious impact if Westminster is blocking any moves for Scotland to do this? Um, could there be repercussions in terms of the conversations around independence and devolution? I think what this might do is for some people who are, you know, very progressive in their thinking around about drugs policy, this might show just sometimes where the blockers are, you know, to the grown-up politics that we need to have, and it might highlight to them. But in reality, I don't want this to be a constitutional football. I want us really to come together and actually support all of our citizens right across the UK with yeah. the most up-to-date and public health-centred 
um, you know, drugs laws that we can have. Yeah. Okay, Elena, last question. Um, I don't know if you've seen this show before, but I often do this with our guests. Um, imagine Keir Starmer was sat in the seat in front of me and Rishi Sunak uh, to my right. It would be a, a remarkable situation, but let's assume that this has happened and you're speaking directly to them. Um, what would you say about this paper and what they need to do? Well, I think I would say to Keir Starmer to take off his prosecution hat and actually listen to his backbenchers who are very vocal in this space, but also look at the evidence, you know, actually really scrutinize what the evidence is saying and to be courageous and come forward. And what I would say to Rishi Sunak is to stop um, deploying the rhetoric and the populist um, mantra that really has no basis in fact and to work with me in the Scottish government to make sure that we can support people right across the United Kingdom from drugs harms. Thank you so much. That was Elena Whitam, Minister for Drugs and Alcohol Policy of Scotland and MSP for Carrick, Cumnock and Doon Valley. We're going to stay on the topic um, of drugs use uh, and the transformation of drug policy by talking to, very aptly, the CEO of Transform Drug Policy Foundation, an independent UK-based charity working towards a just and effective system of legal regulations for all drugs. Alex Vice Bryce is going to be joining us after this short message. Fubar Radio presents The Dating Show. So we have got the incredible Sunita. How does Sunita whittle down the people she wants to talk to to the people she doesn't? What's your criteria? Well, you've got to be an adult. Um, okay. That's always a good start. Always a good start. But when I'm in a adult, not just like 18, you've got to be like not young enough to be my child. Um, <laughs> you have to ideally be London-based, because I am. Yeah. Although I don't mind if you've got a country pad, that would be nice. So at the minute we're going with age and location are important. Age and location are good. Every Friday from 6pm. Fubar Radio. Welcome back. This is Ali Milani on FUBAR Radio at Politics Uncensored. And we are doing drugs this week. Well, we're not doing drugs. We're talking about drugs this week uh, on the show and, and, and drug policy across the UK. This is following uh, Scotland, uh, the Scottish government proposing the decriminalisation of all drugs for personal use in, a, in an attempt to tackle Scotland's chronically high drug death rates. But we're talking about drugs more generally as well, about policy not just in Scotland, across the UK. Uh, and joining us now, we have the CEO of Transform Drug Policy Foundation, a UK-based independent charity working towards a just and effective system of legal regulations for all drugs. Alex Feiss Bryce, I've butchered your name. How do I pronounce your surname? No, that you got it. That's oh, good. have I? Yeah, go. Rare that people get it right, so well done. <laughs> go me, um, Alex. Talk to us a little bit about this policy uh, coming from Scotland. So this this move to decriminalise the use of all drugs for personal use. Do you think this is well, something that the government should be looking to w work towards? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a, a policy that's founded in evidence. I think the Scottish government should be applauded for their leadership. Um, I think in th this is an area of policy which is one of the reasons why I got into it, where the evidence and the expert opinion is usually, you know sees oceans away from um, what the politicians are saying and what the policy is, um, certainly in the two main political parties in the UK. So, um, yeah, I think the Scottish government should be applauded. Um, and this is actually supported by UN AIDS, UN Human Rights, 
the World Health Organization um, and the Faculty of Public Health specifically welcomed mm -hmm. um, the proposals in Scotland as well. So, yeah. so I've just had Elena, who is actually the minister who's working on this paper on the show, um, and, and, and very similar to you, she said that this is very much a, a paper and a proposal that's grounded in evidence in the facts. Um, I I think the debate on drugs in the UK is about 10 to 50 years, 15 years behind where it should be. Um, I think there's a lot of cowardice in Westminster around drug policy, a lot of posturing and sort of bullshit, look how strong I can be on drugs. Um, yeah. to, and, and, and that defines the public discourse. It's not just a reaction to it. Uh, I wonder if you can tell us, I think everybody pretty much agrees that the criminalization or, on then this war on drugs hasn't worked. You work in a charity that deals with people presumably day-to-day -day basis uh, that suffer from uh, drug addiction. Can you give people a little bit of an indication on, on just how badly the current sort of penal system is working um, and why we need to look in a different direction? Yeah, well, actually, Transform, we don't provide services directly, but we do work with... But you'll hear stories, I assume. But yeah, I mean, yeah. Uh, I mean the, the issue we've got in the UK is that... Um, People who use drugs are criminalised. Um, people, particularly people of colour, are um, uh, disproportionately arrested in London, um, particularly in London, but throughout the UK. Um, for um, they're, they're arrested and stopped and searched, um, allegedly for having cannabis, but, but you know often they don't. Usually they don't. Mm -hmm. um, and it's nine times in London more likely to be stopped and searched uh, if you're a, a, a black man than um, if you're a white man. Um, and also the people who are stopped and searched are more likely to be prosecuted and the people who are prosecuted uh, are more likely to go to jail, etc. So we have, you know, our prisons are um, massively mm -hmm. overpopulated by people for drug related um, uh, drug related crimes um, that, that they just shouldn't be there. And it, it destroys their lives mm -hmm. on an ongoing basis. And also um, people who use uh, who do use drugs in a in a way that's problematic um, yeah. are driven away from services by the the fear of criminalization and the stigma associated with criminalization. So you know, I completely yeah. agree with you that we're kind of way behind um, many many other countries, and, particularly and the US, but also countries in Europe. And that's where I want to focus because I think a lot of sort of layman listeners will be thinking, well, if someone's stopped with drugs, they should be arrested. It's illegal. You know, drugs are given to to, to underage minors and all this kinds of stuff. But the the key in what you've just said is. Um, Addiction to drugs are often a disease for people that they need support, healthcare support in. But in a criminal penal system, they are just desperately afraid to look out for help, are they not? Or to seek out help for, for fear yeah, of going exactly. to prison. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And the, I mean, I can't think of another policy or another law that has failed so spectacularly in its aims. You know, the Misuse of Drugs Act was 50 years old last year. Um, and that's the the act that covers uh, you know drug prohibition in the UK. And in that time, since it was introduced, uh, drug use has gone up almost year on year. Drug deaths have gone up almost year on year. Uh, drugs are cheaper, you know, easier to access, and the potency of drugs are up as well. Um, and you know, if you compare it to uh, countries that can that have legally regulated where they can control you know harm reduction and health messaging around around. We've drugs, been talking about Portugal and. Um, yeah. to decriminalization of Portugal. you can control the potency. You can even, you know, you can um, have laws about how old you need to be to, to be able to buy these things and so on. So there's loads of things you can do to actually control drugs in a sensible way that's based on, uh, mm -hmm. you know, evidence of health and associated risks and harms. Um, but at the moment in Britain, we have a free-for-all. 
yeah opponents of this so portugal decriminalized uh the use of personal drugs in 2001 and we spoke previously about how the results of that some of the positive results so hiv transmissions plummeted um in yeah. portugal uh prison populations fell by over 16 and a half percent between the years of 2000 to 2008 yeah um and and a lot of more people used um the healthcare system as a result of drug addiction but opponents uh more recently will point uh, to the fact that addiction levels have risen across Portugal. Overdose rates have hit a 12-year high. They've doubled in Lisbon from 2019 to 2023. Cocaine and ketamine detection, detection is now high, the highest it is in Europe. And drug debris from city streets surged 24% between 20, uh, 2021 and 2022. Um, this has led the mayor of Porto, Rui Moreira, to say these days in Portugal it is forbidden to smoke tobacco outside a school or a hospital. It is forbidden to advertise ice cream and sugar candies and yet it is allowed for people to be here injecting drugs. We've normalized it. What is your response to some of these some of these um, yeah. criticisms of the policy as it pertains to P Portugal? Yeah, I mean, firstly, no one um, no one who argues for drug policy reform, certainly no one that, that you know, I know argues that Portugal is some kind of panacea, you know, like a an ideal approach to drug policy um what what we do um argue is that de you know decriminalization as they have done in portugal is part of or should be part of a raft of of reforms that will make things better and and the things you you say about portugal um you know that the positives are true the the reality is that it's you know it's quite nuanced and there are um mm. there are complications in recent i mean some of the explanations example. coming out of portugal for example uh that make a lot of sense are this increase in overdose uh, rates uh, and the increase in addiction rises coincide with a with a slashing uh, yeah. of the healthcare funding, and so yeah, exactly. unless you that, provide that, that alternative route, say. this is what happens. Yeah, so they've had obviously there's been an economic crisis which has led to increased hardship, homelessness, um, services, uh, treatment services being absolutely slashed, and you know um, decriminalization isn't like I say, it's not the the panacea it's not the you know the be all and end all what it mm -hmm. what it is is enabler for um harm reduction and health approaches but in order to um you know achieve the potential you need to fund um, yeah. services and so on and, and that's that's what's been the problem in portugal and i think the the suggestions that the that portugal are sort of re reconsidering the, the the decriminalization policy is just is just not not accurate um you know there are issues there are you know th that you pointed to mm -hmm. but that isn't to do with decriminalization it's to do with the fact that um you know there's there's social and economic problems and also uh, treatment services have been slashed yeah and i think i think what strikes me the most about what you have said is i don't know i agree with you i don't know of any other area of policy where policy has failed so dramatically so drastically and yet uh politicians from across the political spectrum insist on doubling down on it um and and refuse to be evidence-based uh on on the issue what is it about drugs that makes them so blind to the to the evidence the science the research uh to to, to tackle something that is costing thousands of lives in Scotland and in England and across the UK. Yeah, so I mean, I like like you have been involved in in politics as well. I used to be a, a Labour councillor, and mm. I transform. We have lots of conversations with you know senior politicians in particularly the Conservative Party and the Labour Party. Other parties tend to be a bit more sensible and evidence based, and it's particularly the Greens and the Lib Dems uh, and um, the SNP, of course. Um, and, and what we hear privately is different to what we. Hear politicians saying publicly people say privately that they they fear 
being painted as um, you know um, soft on drugs. Yeah, I've heard by the that. Daily Mail, for example, um, and they fear that narrative. And some politicians say, you know, drug policy reform doesn't play too well on the doorstep when they're knocking on doors. But the reality is, actually, I think, uh, as you said earlier, politicians are way behind the public on this. Mm-hmm. I think if you look at public opinion polls. Um, you know, drug policy isn't the most important thing to most people, um, yeah. but most people are. But um, also, is it not the case? Is it not the case that the reason the reason the debate the reason it doesn't do very well on the doorstep, the reason the narrative around in the public is the way that it is, is because an element of cowardice from the political leaders to actually take this issue on. Uh, we've spoken many times on this show about the need for political courage and how we don't just need leaders who just regurgitate what they hear on the doorstep. We need some people with some serious fucking courage to to take these issues on the doorstep and say no i know this is what you believe but this is what the evidence says and this is the the direction we want to go surely we're asking for just an ounce of courage from our politicians to talk about things and evidence-based approaches that's going to save people's lives yeah I, i couldn't agree more and it is that lack of courage and that's why i think the scottish government's proposals is courageous and actually the response by the labor party in westminster and the um, the UK government and also some um, other parties in Scotland, I think, was shameful. I think, I think, you know, they should be ashamed. The Scottish government are trying to solve a very serious problem that is causing, you know, more than a thousand deaths every year in Scotland, and um, and they should be applauded for the for the leadership and courage. And actually, politicians need to say, you know, I've I've done lots and lots of door knocking for, um, uh, you know, the Labour Party in the past. And you can, and I used to be a counsellor, and you can have conversations. People say, "Oh, uh, you know, I see, I see people dealing drugs on my estate, for example." You say, "Well, the answer to that isn't criminalisation. The answer to that is, you know, legal regulation and providing support, and um, mm-hmm. and there's also a broader economic answer. You know, if people had opportunities and weren't sort of stigmatised and demonised and criminalised, then they would would have other opportunities as well. So the answer might be more complex, but I think politicians need to lead the way in." in making that argument absolutely that's alex vice bryce ceo of transform drug policy foundation and a uk-based independent charity working towards a just and effective system of legal regulation for all drugs thank you so much for joining thank us you. alex Good we're going to continue you. on this issue but but we're going to my favorite segment of the show regular listeners will know um that i like it best when we hear from from real people and again i i preface this every week by saying not saying our guests aren't real people but listening to people on the street the, the, the fabled doorstep that politicians often use, which ironically enough, every time politicians talk about the doorstep, it seems to regurgitate what they ex- the already believe and the mood is or- already the policies that they've purported. But this week, uh, we went out onto the streets of England's Islington to find out what people really think. Our wonderful producers went out onto the streets and asked people, if you were in charge, how would you tackle the issues of drugs and drug misuse? People are going to use drugs regardless of whether they're legal or not. As a government, they could they could tax it and actually reduce the harm to users. I think when it comes to people who are ill or unwell, I think drugs legally certainly have a place. I do think, however, for young kids and people who are prone to addictive behaviours, I think there should be um, a lot of restrictions around them. If you could control who can have them and make them safer, then I'd be pro it. I think if it's not like a criminal thing, the fun is over, you know, people just go after drugs because it's prohibited. So I think if there was like uh, legal shops where people could buy drugs, it would be a better way to control. I'm actually from Portugal and Portugal has decriminalized drugs. As someone that grew up as generation after that one, 
versus my siblings. There was a huge drug problem and they lost a lot of their friends. And my generation, I don't know people doing drugs at all. I think it really changed the country. I think they should go for it. That is amazing to listen to. What, what, what you will have heard is very, very different to the image that politicians will often portray around the issue of drugs. They often suggest that, that, that there is a fear on the doorstep and amongst the communities on decriminalization. And I'm sure that's true to a certain degree. But what we hear here is actually there's far more courage in the British public than their political leaders. Um, and, and there is a lot more flexibility, openness to discussing issues uh, of drug decriminalization and dealing with this as a healthcare matter. It is undoubted for anybody who's paying attention that using the penal system uh, and the criminal system to deal with addiction as a disease has not worked for generations. It only has caused, put power into the hands of, of organized crime and, and, and gangs uh, who continue to, to deal drugs to uh, vulnerable people uh, and who often lace them with, with, with dangerous uh, substances and chemical. It's only caused harm in hundreds of thousands of people dying as a result of overdoses and a, a, as a result of not receiving treatment. And all it has done, the only thing that it has been successful in doing is rising the prison population across the UK. What we have here is an opportunity to discuss drug policy in a reasonable, grounded way. Drug addiction for so many people is often a disease. And there is no other disease where we tell people to go to prison for. Well, if someone has diabetes, we don't put them in prison for it. Uh, if someone has arthritis, we don't put them in prison for it. Drug addiction is a disease and it requires the compassion of the state it requires patience from the state and it requires courage for us to to deal with a public health issue in the public health system uh, and that's what this sort of legislation proposes now this may not be the right way to go this 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 particular paper by the smp may not be the right way to go but what we're desperate for is a political class and political leadership whether that's the labor party the conservative party the liberal democrats the greens to deal with this issue openly, honestly, and grounded in research. We don't need people in Westminster, and for God's sake, I would hope that before they talk about drugs, someone does a drug test of the bathrooms of Westminster. I think you'll find an awful lot of cocaine traces in there. What we don't need is people who aren't experts on the issue to, 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 to drive policy on it. If you listen to the scientists, if you listen to the social scientists, if you listen to the evidence, it suggests that the war on drugs has failed, the criminalizations of drugs has failed, and we need to go in a different tact. I want to thank everybody for joining us. This this hour has whizzed by, and I'm sure we'll, we'll touch this topic again. Uh, a big thank you to Natalie Balmain, being the first person to join us two times uh, on The Week Unwrapped, the winner of Channel 4's Make Me a Prime Minister and the UK's first alternative Prime Minister for joining us, Elena Whittam, Minister for Drugs and Alcohol Policy of Scotland, and MSP for Carrick, Cumnock and Dune Valley. She's been driving this policy uh, from Scotland on the decriminalisation of drugs. And Alex Face Bryce, CEO of Transform Drug Policy Foundation, who joined us and gave us uh, a, a, an overview uh, of what the reaction is on the ground uh, to the current criminalised system. A big thank you to all my guests for joining us and to all of you for listening. You can, set, you can go back, like I said at the beginning of the show, you can go back and listen to all of our episodes. Uh, we've done uh, episodes on healthcare, we've done episodes on political courage, like I've spoken about today on drugs uh, and other things. You can catch all of those episodes on FUBAR Radio's website. Listen back on podcasts via Android or Apple podcast platforms. And you can follow us uh, at Politics 
Fubar on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, you can follow us. Uh, I am on at Ali Milani underscore UK on Twitter and Ali Milani UK on Instagram. And we are now on TikTok. I TikTok sometimes. Uh, my producers are laughing at me. So you can catch me on TikTok at Ali Milani UK. Join me again next week as we have a rammed show, including Miqdad Versi, who's going to be joining us from the Muslim Council uh, of Britain. I think we're going to be talking a little bit about foreign policy next week. So make sure you tune in on that. I've been Ali Milani. This is Politics Uncensored on Fubar Radio. See you all next week. Salams. <laughs>